Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we thank you this morning for your word, even for the way that you encourage us through parts that we don't expect to be encouraging. Lord, I pray that you would use Romans 16 this morning to renew us, to give us a new love for one another, for the gospel, for this great task that you've put before us. Lord, I pray that you would renew in our hearts a love for this great message that you've imparted to us. And I pray that you would use this passage to stir us up to live out the great commandments. We commit ourselves to you and ask for your help and blessing in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning in a copy of the scriptures that's either before you in the pew or maybe one you brought with you to Romans chapter 16. And as you turn there, I'll just observe that, you know, as we set out to make our way through the book of Romans, there were a number of passages that I was excited about preaching. Romans 16 was not one of them, uh, simply because, you know, it, it's just a list of names. But this week, as I've as I've read and reread and thought and rethought through this passage, it's become more and more precious to me. And, and it really has a beauty that, that is surprising. It was totally unexpected to me how this, how this passage would, would hit me. And I hope that it'll have the same impact upon you. Um, I, had, I asked for the two passages that we read earlier in the service to be read because in some ways Romans 16 is kind of like that list of the mighty men. It's almost like Paul near the end of his life, you know, he's been serving Christ since about AD 30 or so and uh, many agree that Romans was written probably in AD 57 right before he goes to Jerusalem to be imprisoned for two years in, in Israel and then he goes, he goes to Rome and he's imprisoned for another two years there. Then maybe he's released but Near the end there, A.D. 57 or so, he's reflecting on the last 20 years of ministry, 25, 30 years of ministry, and he knows all these people who have now found their way to the capital, to the, the, the empire's uh, central city, the city of Rome, and having articulated this gospel that he wants that church there to embrace because he's going to make his way to Rome as we saw in Romans 15, and then he hopes to go to Spain, and he wants those small, beleaguered, seemingly insignificant house churches who don't have great resources, he wants them to help him get to Spain. And so he gives them this, this gospel in this book that is meant to unify their hearts and fire them up for the cause, the Great Commission, and help him get to Spain. And then he's got this list of names and, and these greetings for them, and these greetings, they really do live out the great commandment because these greetings show to us that Paul has been paying attention. Paul has been noting over the years who has been serving with him and he knows where they are now. And he's been listening as he hears reports about who's made their way to Rome, those who are beloved to him and those who, whom he has not even met yet. And he knows their names, probably because he's been praying for them. And he's been remembering them before the Lord. 
And so as he thinks on this church, in, in these churches in Rome, we're going to see, he's aware of who's there, and he wants to greet them personally, because as he does this, it's, it's going to honor and acknowledge those who have been working faithfully to the gospel, which is going to have a unifying impact on those local congregations, and also it's going to motivate them to continue to give themselves for the gospel. The, the, the list of the mighty men is kind of like, it's almost like attending a funeral, you know, and, and you hear this sort of summary of all the great deeds. And, and in some ways, Romans 16 has a kind of funereal feel to me that, that Paul is reflecting on these people who are dear to him. And, and then we also know from uh, 2 Timothy, the passages that J.O. read, that people, we see in Romans 16, people were Paul's greatest joy. We see in 2 Timothy that people were his deepest sorrow. Did you notice in 2 Timothy 1 how Paul said, all who are in Asia have deserted me. Can you imagine that? We're talking about the apostle Paul. And, and there, 2 Timothy, he's, he's imprisoned in that letter as he writes it. How in the world can he say the words, all who are in Asia have deserted me? I don't know what happened. I don't know if it was another Barnabas and Mark kind of situation like we see in Acts when they, they decide to part ways. Maybe it was a, a disagreement over leadership styles, disagreement on how to handle people. Maybe it was heresy that was ramp, you know, raging like a fire through, through Asia, through modern-day Turkey there, all those churches that Paul had planted. And, and somehow, uh, surely it's hyperbolic, no doubt there were faithful Christians who were clinging to Paul's gospel, but still he can say, all who were in Asia have deserted me. And then later he can talk about that guy Demas and, and, and how he was in love with the present world, and so he forsook Paul and his message. And, and then he can say in 2 Timothy 4, at my first defense, no one stood by me. And yet the Lord didn't abandon him. Well, if that's sort of the, the negative side of the coin, the deepest sorrow side of the coin of dealing with people, the greatest joy side of the coin is what we have here in Romans 16. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting how if you, if you look into this passage, there are actually scholars who have argued that Romans 16 is not part of the letter. It was not original to the letter. And, and one of their reasons, one of their arguments is, uh, it looks like it ends at the end of chapter 15. Look at chapter 15, verse, um, the, the last verse there. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. It sounds like a conclusion. And then they seem to reason this majestic letter. Why would it conclude with this list of names? But as I've already indicated, I think that the list of names is actually part of the point. The list of names shows that that Paul wants to live out what Jesus said when he said, they will know that you're my disciples if you, if you love one another. And, and so here we are. He's, he's exposited the great message, the gospel, on behalf of the great cause, trying to take the gospel to Spain. And now he's living out in Romans 16 the great commandments. Uh, love God and love one another. And uh, there, there's a kind of structure, I think, to this passage. 
And it begins in verses 1 and 2 with what Paul has to say about Phoebe. And, and this, is, this, this in itself was surprising to me. So I'll just read Romans 16, 1 and 2, and we'll think about it together. Paul writes here, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. It's been proposed, and I think this is probably the case, that Phoebe is commended because she's the one who bears the letter. She's, she's the one to whom Paul has entrusted the letter to the Romans, and she is probably with a delegation of people, and she's going to arrive at the church in Rome with this letter, and letter carriers, this was surprising to me, okay, we have to hold together everything that the Bible says about, um, about one, what, what women are permitted to do and about what women are not permitted to do. So Paul clearly says in 2 Timothy uh, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 2, that women are not permitted to teach or exercise authority over men. And yet he's given the letter to Phoebe and he's commending this woman to the church in Rome. Honestly, that surprised me. I mean, I, I found myself thinking, forgive me for this, okay? But I found myself thinking, was there not a man to lead the delegation, Paul? Could you not have given the letter to a man? Well, he didn't want to, evidently. For whatever reason, he gave this letter to Phoebe, and as the letter carrier, it would have been her responsibility to explain parts of the letter, to answer questions that people would have had about the letter. Now, I think she would have done that in such a way that she would not have done what Paul did not permit, that is, teaching and exercise authority over men. So there's, there's some womanly, feminine, matronly, appropriate way for Phoebe in a patriarchal culture like we had there under Paul's authority to, to arrive with this letter and be commended to the church in Rome by him and then for her to have the responsibility to uh, see that the letter was read aloud in the congregation, to see that the letter was, was copied and distributed to all the various churches, house churches in Rome, and then to be available to anyone that had questions about what exactly Paul meant by different parts of the letter. So this is really, this, this was surprising to me. And uh, we need to factor this into our thinking about women's roles. Paul says, I commend to you our sister. Maybe I should have started there. The first thing he says about this woman is that she's a sister. She's a believer, and this is reflecting the whole family of God, that, that she's experienced the new birth, and so now she belongs to the family of God. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, and then he continues, a servant of the church at Sincrea. Kincrea, I don't know how you say that word. I, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church. And there's a debate here over whether Phoebe was serving as a deacon or if she's simply to be regarded as a servant. The, the Greek word here used to, that's, that's rendered servant is the same word that's used uh, to speak of the deacons. And I think the question on where you come down on that, on that divide, uh, it comes down to when you think the office of deacon became an office. And what I mean there is, I, I, so I think that if, if, you, if you see Acts 6 happening early in the church, and they, 
They put deacons in place, even though they're not specifically called deacons in Acts 6. They're doing what deacons do. And then you see the letter to the Philippians where Paul writes to the overseers and deacons. And then later than that, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul gives these, these qualifications for deacons. If you see that office of deacon, a, a person who's recognized and set apart and affirmed and acknowledged as, as someone who is serving the church in specific ways, if you see that as something that crops up early in the church and that is almost there from the beginning, from Acts 6 forward, then I think it's going to be very hard not to conclude that Phoebe was a deacon. If you take the other view that the offices arose late, then I think you can argue, well, there are lots of people referred to as a, a diakonon. There, there are different people referred to this way, and so this is not necessarily the office of deacon. And sometimes different passages are quoted in this way, and, and I would just invite you to look at a couple of them. One of them is Colossians chapter 1, verse 7, where um, th this is a verse that's cited as other instances of the, of the word um, diakonon being used to describe people who are not necessarily deacons of the church. But I would invite you to look at the text. Paul says here, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. So the word minister there is, rend is, is rendering, translating uh, diakonon. And, and clearly, I think this is a different category of reference, isn't it? Because this is someone who's not a diakonon of a particular church, like we have in Romans 16.1, Phoebe, a servant of the church. This is someone who is a diakonon of Christ. And, and so I, I don't think that Paul is referring to Epaphras as uh, fulfilling the same office that he seems to be referring to uh, in Romans 16.1 with Phoebe. Another, uh, another reference along these lines is in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, where Paul writes to Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So here again, a good diakonon of Christ Jesus, which again, I think this puts it, puts it in a different category because he's not referring to Timothy being a diakonon of a particular church. Now the difficulty here is that Romans 16.1 is the only place in the New Testament where we have someone referred to as a diakonon of a particular church. So I want to acknowledge that it's it's, you can't, I don't think you can be certain about this. I don't think we can be dogmatic about this. But I also want to say, it really looks to me like Phoebe is a deacon of the church at Sincrea. I think that's the most natural reading of, of the text. And I, I further want to say, in a situation where uh, if you have men who are serving as elders, overseers, bishops, pastors, however you want to refer to them, and, and it's their responsibility to teach and exercise authority over the general congregation, I don't think there's any problem with having uh, women serve as deacons in the church. Now, the question of whether or not it would be appropriate for us to recognize women, women deacons is another question because we have people in our congregation who are opposed to that idea. And, and so for us to go there, we would, we would want to obey what Paul says about Weaker brothers, my apologies, uh, in, in Romans 
13, 14, and 15. And I think only if we could come to a place where no one feels that their conscience is being trampled upon, where no one feels that their, um, um, their faith is being jeopardized, would we want to move forward with that. But I really think that, that um, there are strong arguments, both in Romans 16 and in uh, 1 Timothy 3, in the qualifications for deacons, for concluding that women served as deacons in Paul's day, and I think that Phoebe is one of them, and he's commending her to the church. Honestly, it seems to me that the office of deacon is a lesser issue than her arriving with the letter, as the letter carrier, with the responsibility to see to its uh, proper distribution and understanding. That seems to me to be a bigger deal than her occupying the office of, of deacon. But I want to say about this that we need to embrace everything the Bible teaches. And we, we shouldn't be afraid of anything that the Bible teaches. So Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea. And then look at what he says there in verse 2. That you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. So he wants Phoebe to be received because he wants the message to be received. He wants these churches that he's about to describe and address to receive the content of the letter to the Romans that he's written. And so he wants her welcomed in the Lord. We're going to see that phrase, in the Lord or in Christ Jesus, repeatedly through this passage. And then that next phrase, in a way worthy of the saints. It's like Paul is saying, when Phoebe arrives, I expect you all to act like Christians. That's what I expect. When she gets there, I expect you to show her the kind of hospitality that befits people that know the Lord Jesus. I expect you to, to see that she doesn't have to be put up in some hotel. I don't even know if they had hotels in ancient Rome. Where's she going to stay? What's she going to eat? Is she going to have to pay for all of this? No. You need to receive her. You need to welcome her from Paul in a way that is worthy of the saints. I don't think this primarily refers to monetary, material, financial considerations. I think it mainly has to do with, with personal attention and with, with interpersonal affection that Paul expects them to show to her. And then out of that will flow all the other stuff. If, if, you've, got the, if you've got the personal relationship right, the material needs are going to be met. They're going to be taken care of. But Paul wants Phoebe welcomed in, a, in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. And then he goes on, and help her in whatever she may need from you. I think in particular, he's talking about the copying and the distribution of the letter. That was an expensive enterprise. You couldn't just go down to Office Depot and buy a whole bunch of paper, you know, for a penny a piece or something like this. Uh, writing utensils, scribes were expensive, writing utensils were expensive, parchment was expensive, all of that stuff was costly and time-consuming, and then not only do you have to reproduce the letter, then you're going to have to see to it that it gets into the right hands, and that the people who receive this letter don't look at it and say, what is this? Who is this guy, Paul? No, they need to welcome her in the Lord, and then they need to help her in whatever way she needs, which means... When they get this letter, they need to receive it as a word from God. 
And they need to see to it that it's read in the congregation. And they need to respond to it as Paul wants them to. Welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need for you, from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. This probably indicates that Phoebe was a person of means. She had, she had wealth at her disposal and she was in position to help people financially, including Paul. So because of her faithful gospel service and, and the sacrificial way that she's given herself, they need to welcome her. They need to receive her in these ways. So we start with Phoebe, and then we start moving through Paul's beloved co-workers. And there seems to be a kind of, a kind of logic to the passage it seems, to, it seems that Paul starts with those who are most dear to him. And then he, he gradually moves through, first in verses 3 through 5, those who were co-workers of his in Achaia, that's Greece, and Asia, that's uh, modern-day Turkey. And then uh, in verses 6 and 7, he seems to move perhaps, I'm, I'm I mean, you know, we're looking at this and trying to figure out what's going on. He seems to move perhaps to those who were maybe the first missionaries in Rome, those who brought the gospel to Rome in verses 6 and 7. And then in verses 8 through 10, because of the way that he has particular things to say about these people, he seems to know these people personally. And then after that, in verses 11 through 15, it seems that perhaps Paul is speaking of people that he's only heard about. Christians that he's only heard of and hasn't worked with in other places or um, known personally. So we begin in verse um, 3 here with Prisca and Aquila. So he writes, greet Prisca and Aquila. And I would just observe as we begin here that this word greet, it's a second person plural command. And and this word, greet, is going to occur 18 times in this passage, in verses 3 through 16. So there are going to be 18 instances of this word. All but, I think, the last are, are in the form of this second-person plural command, which means Paul is not saying, Pastor Denny at Kenwood, you greet so-and-so. No, it's like whole congregation at Kenwood greet this person that I'm now speaking of. So verse 3, he says, greet Prisca and Aquila. Um, let's just briefly review who these people are. Acts 18, verse 2, Paul meets these folks in Corinth. And we're told there that they had been driven out of Rome because Claudius had decreed that all the Jews had to leave Rome. So these are, these are Jews, Prisca and Aquila, who were from Rome. They, they were driven out of Rome, and Paul runs across them in Corinth, and then later in that cha same chapter, um, Acts 18, verses 25 and 26, we find them in Ephesus. Well, why did they go from Corinth to Ephesus? We're not told. Maybe it was business re reasons. Maybe they were, they were uh, missionaries, and they're traveling about from city to city doing gospel work. We're, we're not explicitly told why they go from one place to another. But now, here in Romans 16, verse 5, they're back in Rome, because after Claudius died, the decree that all the Jews had to leave Rome, it, it, it became ineffective, 
it, it lapsed, and so they could return to Rome. And then later, over in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 19, Paul will, will greet them. So apparently they're back in Ephesus where Timothy is when he receives 2 Timothy. So these folks got around. Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, Rome, and then back to Ephesus. These, these people were mobile. I mean, I think we, we often assume that we have this kind of mobile culture where people are coming and going, but in the ancient world, people pretty much stayed put. Well, not these two. These folks are all over the place. And look at the affection that Paul communicates. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. There's a, there's a camaraderie. There's a love in the shared task. And then the next, the next verse here, verse 4, is beautiful. Paul says, who risked their necks for my life. This is probably a quite literal reference to the way that Roman citizens would be decapitated if they fell afoul of the emperor. Paul is, is saying these people risked decapitation for me. And, and, you know, anytime this, something like this happens, there's a calculation that goes on, isn't there? We don't, we don't know the circumstances. We don't know the situation that resulted in Priscilla and Aquila realizing we could help Paul, but it could go wrong. And it could cost us, ex we could be executed as a result. We, we're not, maybe it was Ephesus. Maybe it was a riot. You know, we read about a riot in Ephesus. Maybe Priscilla and Aquila have an opportunity to go and intercede with a high-ranking government governing official. And if they do that, the guy could decide, well, you're trouble too, and I'm just doing away with all. I don't, we don't know what the situation was. But I suspect they knew this could cost us our lives. And they decided it's worth it. It's worth it because the gospel is worth it. That, that calculation has been made by Christians across the ages, and we want to continue to make that calculation. We want to continue to come to the conclusion it's worth it to risk our lives for the sake of the gospel. And if we make that calculation, I mean, look at how it, look at how it pays out for, for Prisca and Aquila. It gets recorded in the greatest letter of all time that they were prepared to sacrifice everything for the gospel that they believed and for the apostle that they loved. That's beautiful. That's awesome. Prisca and Aquila, we could say, covered themselves with glory by being prepared to lay down their lives for the gospel. They risked their necks for my life. And then he goes on, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. They're grateful because it kept Paul alive. They're all grateful. And notice, notice, it's not just gratitude directed to God. I don't, I don't know if you've been around. I've been, I actually had a PhD student one time who told me that he wanted to write a dissertation arguing that it was only appropriate to give thanks to God. And I'm like, no, you're not doing that. No, we're not doing that. Right there, Paul is talking about the appropriateness of the churches thanking Prisca and Aquila for the way that they risked their lives for Paul's sake. He's grateful to them, and all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks for them as well. And then verse 5, greet also the church in their house. So, you know, maybe these folks were uh, prosperous in business as they went from 
Rome to Corinth to Ephesus, back to Rome, and then over to Ephesus. And evidently, they have means, they have a home, and evidently that home is large enough to, to host a house church. And um, Paul is now greeting this church that meets in their house. This is the first of probably five, maybe more churches that he's going to reference here in this passage. So it's a kind of window into early Christianity in Rome, into what, what life was like for them. Next there, in verse 5, he writes, Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. So Paul references this guy, the first fruits of Christ in Asia. Evidently, this was the first guy that believed the gospel when Paul went about preaching. And naturally, you would, Paul feels an affection for him. He remembers him. And, and, and now this guy has gone to Rome, and Paul is greeting this guy who is dear to him in Rome. Now, the next verse, in verse 6, he says, greet Mary. And, and at this point, we, we, we seem to move from those who were in Asia to perhaps those who were in Rome. And, um, you know, I couldn't find a modern commentator willing to, willing to hazard the idea that maybe this was Mary, the mother of Jesus. The closest you get to it is, is someone mentioning, you know, there are six people in the New Testament uh, named Mary. I think in favor of the idea that maybe this is Mary, the mother of Jesus, is the idea that, or the fact that she's listed so close to the front, you know, you've got... He, he, he commends Phoebe, and then you get Prisca and Aquila, and then you get Epinatus, and then Mary. So maybe that prominence uh, indicates that this is a, a significant person that the church would have known and appreciated, or maybe it's just one of the other Marys that we read about. Whatever the case, notice again how prominent women are in this passage. Phoebe, verses 1 and 2, and then uh, Prisca, in verse 3, and now greet Mary who has worked hard for you. Paul was a guy that appreciated hard work. And Paul is commending and, and commit, telling the church, the church is, to greet this woman who has worked hard for them. And then in verse 7, greet Andronicus and Junia. Junia is another woman. My kinsmen, so they're Jews, I don't know whether or not they're related to Paul in a close uh, familial way, but whatever the case, they're Jews. My kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. And here again, you know, you get this little window into Paul's life. We, we're not told at one point they were imprisoned with Paul. Probably when they got imprisoned with Paul, nobody was very happy about it. But later, after the fact, after suffering with Paul, it's pretty cool, isn't it? <laughs> you got imprisoned with the apostle Paul. And he's calling it out in the letter to the Romans. Whatever you suffer for the gospel of Christ, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. Whatever you sacrifice for the gospel, you're going to be glad you did. My kinsmen, my fellow prisoners, they are, the ESV renders this next line, they are well known to the apostles. There's also a, a footnote um, well, it, it says, or messengers in the lower margin on, in the ESV. Um, other translations, the NIV renders this, outstanding among the apostles. The New American Standard renders this, outstanding among the apostles. In the New Testament, you get 
different kinds of apostles mentioned. You have capital A apostles, that's like the 12 whom Jesus named as apostles, plus Paul and uh, maybe Barnabas, maybe James, maybe Jude, and that's it. You've got a closed circle of capital A apostles, and then you've got a lot of people that are referred to as apostles, and, and really they're just messengers. In fact, in Philippians 2, this guy Epaphras is referred to as your messenger, and it's, it's your apostle, literally. So I think this would be like we have a couple of, we have several single ladies, Blakely and Jen and Amber, and we could call them apostles if we wanted to. I think it would be confusing to do that, so I'm not advising it. But I, I think that's the sense in which um, perhaps uh, Andronicus and Junia are apostles in the sense that the churches have sent them to go and do gospel work. So greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles or um, they are outstanding among the apostles. They're really good missionaries and they were in Christ before me. So they've been trusting Christ, believing Jesus longer than Paul has. And then next he says, greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. And and this, so this is another guy that Paul knows, and he refers to him as my beloved. We had, we had Epinatus referred to this way, and now we get this guy Ampliatus referred to this way. You know, this, this actually, one of, the, one of the ways this encouraged me was the fact that Paul doesn't say this about every guy in the list. Paul evidently felt closer to some people in the churches than to other people. In the, he had deeper and stronger relations and more history with some people in the church than with other people in the church. And that's okay. That's the way life goes. It went that way for Paul. It'll go that way for us. So greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. So Urbanus is a fellow worker. Verse 3, Prisca and Aquila were fellow workers. And then he continues, and my beloved Stachys. Then, he, then he's in verse 10, he says, greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. And you know, there's all this, this uh, speculation and comment. Why would he say that Apelles is approved in Christ? And we don't know. He could say that about all Christians, all believers. Everybody, I mean, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But maybe, I mean, I'm just totally speculating here. Maybe Paul and this guy had a conversation and this guy was really wrestling with assurance of his salvation. And so Paul takes an opportunity to say, greet, greet this fellow who is approved in Christ. And then in verse 10, the next line, when he says, greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. You notice he doesn't say greet Aristobulus, which indicates that maybe Aristobulus himself is not a Christian, but those who belong to the family of Aristobulus is probably including slaves and other members of this broader household who are Christians, and maybe there was a church that, that, com that was comprised of those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. In, in the Roman world, family was broader than just your, your blood relatives, it would have included people that worked for you, people that, I mean, if you're, a, if you're a landholder or, you know, the head of a household, it would have included lots of people who weren't necessarily related to you. And Paul wants, it looks like that church that is comprised of the family of Aristobulus greeted. Then in verse 11, he says, greet my kinsman Herodion. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Again, Narcissus himself is not greeted those who belong to the family of Narcissus. So maybe this is the third church that's been mentioned in this passage. 
First was the church in the house of Prisca and Aquila, back up in verse 5. And then those who belong to the family of Aristobulus in verse 10. And now another church, it seems, perhaps, in verse 11, those who belong to the family of Narcissus. In verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord. And this is similar to the language that we saw back up in verse 6. Mary, who has worked hard for you, greet those workers in the Lord. And then here again in verse 12, we have two more women, Tryphena and Tryphosa. These are women's names. As is Persis, greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. And then verse 13, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. And here again, I'm just totally speculating here. Why would he call Rufus chosen when he could say of every Christian in the list that they're chosen? So a little speculation. Maybe Paul and Rufus had, a, had an argument about predestination and election. And, and maybe Paul finally convinces him, you know, actually, the Bible does teach predestination and, and God's choice of people. And so kind of with maybe a wink in his eye, he refers to Rufus chosen in the Lord. I don't know, perhaps. Uh, but he could say that about any of these folks. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. And once again, we see the, the acknowledgement of the sacrifice, the remembrance of the love shown. Verse 14, greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. That reference to the brothers who are with them seems to refer to another, another church. And so maybe, and here again, I'm, again, I'm just totally speculating. He doesn't spell this out. But maybe these, these guys who are listed here, Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermos, and Patrobas, Hermes and Patrobas, maybe they're leaders in the church. And, and then the church that they lead is referenced at the end of verse 14. Verse 15, greet Philologus, Julia, another woman, Nereus, and his sister, another woman, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. And again, that all the saints who are with them could, could refer to a congregation. Verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Uh, early early uh, Christian scholars uh, were concerned that the holy kiss not be used for unholy purposes. Um, but whatever, whatever the case, however this gets acted out among us, I think the point is, greet one another with affection, with warmth, with enthusiasm. Greet one another lovingly, as befits those who belong to the same family. So I'm not calling for us to begin kissing one another. I don't think we need to do that. But I do think we need to be warm and affectionate and, and glad-hearted in the way that we greet one another. And then... End of verse 16, all the churches of Christ greet you. Notice how comprehensive this is. All the churches of Christ greet you. Tom Schreiner writes about that last, last reference that this indicates that supporting Paul in his mission to get to Rome and then on to Spain is an ecumenical responsibility. All the churches greet you. So, you know, he, he's written this letter to them. He's, he's going to impose himself upon them. He wants them to help him to get to Spain. And all the churches are involved in this. Well, let me, let me just summarize some things about this passage. Uh, one thing to note about this passage is the beautiful diversity that we see here. Eighteen of the names 
can be identified as Greek names, meaning these, these, these are names likely given to these people by Greek-speaking families. So whether they were from whatever, that was their cultural background, a Greek cultural background. Eight of the names can be identified as Latin names, so Roman-speaking cultural background. There, there are probably about seven Jews in the list, so there's another layer of cultural diversity. And then there are three people in this list, Nereus, Hermes, and Persis, whose names indicate that they were almost certainly slaves. And, and this just, scholars look at this, you know, they look at what names are used and, and, and uh, who, who gets named what in that culture. And so three of these folks were almost definitely slaves, and then probably another six people mentioned were slaves, along with the reference to, for instance, uh, back in verse 10, those who belong to the family of Aristobulus and those who belong to the family of Narcissus. They're probably slaves included as well there. Can you imagine what it would do to the social structure to have the Apostle Paul greet a slave as beloved? I mean, this is just totally unexpected. Here's, here's one of the authorities of the early church writing this letter and addressing all these different people and, and not abiding by any of the assumptions and the expectations of proper Roman imperial culture. All of that's just getting thrown out of the window. So there's, there's glorious diversity. There are at least eight women in this passage, not counting Phoebe. Um, and I could go through the names, but I'm not going to take the time to read them. We've been through them. Let me, let me quickly give us some applications from this passage. Some of these I've already touched on, but I think Romans 16, 1 through 16, has a lot to say to us. Number one, first application. There's an affirmation here of women in ministry. I'm not saying women can be pastors, all right? Women are not to teach or exercise authority over men. But there's an affirmation of women doing ministry work. A lot of women in this passage working hard in the Lord. And surprising responsibility. To me, it's surprising for Phoebe to be to the letter carrier. And I think also the office of deacon would be open to women. Number two, there, there's a call, an explicit command, really, from Paul for traveling ministry workers, Phoebe in particular, to be welcomed in a way worthy of the saints. So he's talking about gospel-driven love and prayer and attention to these folks that makes them feel like they belong to Jesus. Welcome them in a manner worthy of the saints. So we're called to do this. When we have people come and visit us, we want to be sure that we Remember Romans 16, 2, that we welcome these folks in a way worthy of the saints. And then uh, I think in the, in the instruction there in verse 2, help her in whatever she may need from you is a call to materially advance the gospel in any way that's needed. You know, we, we don't have to buy papyrus today or quills. We don't have to hire scribes today, but we got other kinds of expenses, don't we? And, and ultimately, all of this is being pointed at the Great Commission. This is one of the reasons the elders are so happy to put this budget in front of you, because we think everything in that budget can be tied to the work of the Great Commission. There is nothing in that budget that we are trying to hide or that we're embarrassed about. We want you to see it, and we want you to 
affirm it and endorse it because we're trying to get the message to as many people as we can possibly get it to. That's what everything we're doing is about. And I would just say here, if you're here today and you're a visitor, you don't, you don't identify as a follower of Jesus, we want you to follow Jesus. We want you to know that God sent his son to die, that, ye, that you could experience salvation. And if you'll turn to Christ, if you'll turn away from your sin and put your hope in Christ, you can join us in this great cause. Number four, notice all the references to work for the gospel. Verse three, my fellow workers. Verse six, Mary, who has worked hard for you. Verse nine, Persis, who, uh, I'm, no, I'm sorry, verse uh, nine, Urbanus, our fellow worker. And then verse 12, twice in verse 12, those workers in the Lord and Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Paul values work for the gospel. Sometimes it's work. Sometimes it's work. When we put, I mean, I just praise God for the people that poured themselves into that recent evangelistic event. There's another one coming, and, and we're going to try to get the gospel to our, our um, uh, Muslim background friends or people that are interested in Islam. And, and there's going to be work involved in tramping through this neighborhood, inviting people in, in what goes into getting this place ready to go. There's going to be work involved. And I would say again, no. You, I, I dare say you will regret no sacrifice that you make for the cause of Christ. Fifth, notice how Paul refers to believers. They are in Christ. They are in the Lord. So just... Just an example of this, you know, verse, verse 13, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. They're in the Lord, this idea of being united to Christ. He's in us and we are in him. There's a, a whole theology behind this that should inform the way that we think about one another. Number six, I've already said this numerous times, the gospel is worth whatever we risk for it. And the greater the risk, the greater the glory, both for God and for the risk takers. And number seven, Paul's a really important guy, and these people are beloved to him. Paul's not one of these leaders who doesn't have time for ordinary people like slaves. Paul loves these people, greets them by name. There, there, are, there are 20 nine named people in, this in, this, in these 16 verses. Not all of them are Christians, uh, but he knows people by name. And then lastly, notice the, the way that Paul applies Christian theology to these people. He, he refers to uh, Ampliatus as, as one, I'm sorry, it's not Ampliatus, it's a Peles in verse 10, as one who is approved in Christ. And I just want to say, let's think of each other like this. If you're walking with God, if you're believing the gospel, you are approved in Christ. And then Rufus, chosen in the Lord, let's think of each other like this. Elect from before the foundation of the world. That should inform the way we think about each other. And then Phoebe, our sister, and then he, he refers to these other guys as brothers. And this is probably also what's behind him, at least in part, referring to Rufus 
his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. He had experienced her personal kindness, but the familial aspect of the relationship is also connected to the theology. It's a glorious passage. There's a lot we can learn from a list of names. We have a great task. We have a great message. And neither the task nor the message are separated from the great commandments. And there's no better way to live, is there, than with a family like this. Let's pray together. Father, our prayer is that you would enable us, whether we stay in Louisville or go somewhere else, Lord, we want to feel the kind of camaraderie that is articulated in this passage. And we want to preserve and maintain the kinds of relationships with those who go out from us. Lord, keep us from being discouraged by people who are sent by you somewhere else. Keep us from being discouraged that we no longer get to enjoy their company. Lord, make us ready like Paul to, to keep in touch with folks, to pray for people, to greet them, to commend them, to honor them, to know them, even if the world would consider them insignificant. Lord, would you replicate the diversity that we see in this passage in our congregation, in our lives? And would you cause us to feel for one another what we ought to feel? Help us to think theologically about one another as approved and chosen and beloved Lord, this gospel and this message is better than anything we could have imagined. It's certainly better than anything we ever could have deserved. We pray that your mercy would transform us and make us like Christ. And we thank you for the, the snapshot of Christ-likeness that we see from the Apostle Paul in this chapter. We love you, we thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.